So, Frederica, you, you read both verse and poetry. In this, I believe, you take after your mother, who knows a great many things. Just yesterday, she cited to me a story from the Bible about a very wise king. This reminded me of many such uh, accounts one learns in childhood. Perhaps the most significant in forming one's principles is that of the old prophet who came down from the mount with tablets bearing the Twelve Commandments, which our Lord has taught us to obey without fail. Twelve Commandments? Mm. Excuse me, but uh, <clears throat> I believe there were only ten. Really? Only ten must be obeyed. Excellent! <laughs> well, then, which, which two to take off? Perhaps the one about the Sabbath. I prefer to hunt. Well... After that, it becomes tricky. Many of the thou shalt nots, don't murder, uh, don't covet thy neighbour's house or wife, you, one simply wouldn't do anyway, <laughs> because they are wrong whether the Lord allows us to take them off or not. use this microphone and all of a sudden everything will be clear. Um, so, you know, let, let's get on with it. Um, what I do during the week, I'm an educational researcher and we do literature reviews before we sort of dive into the research. We try and work out what people who came before us who often know a whole lot more than us actually know and can tell us about the subject. So I um, started with a literature review, except this time the literature's a little bit different. Um, so I thought, where should I go? I'll go to Amazon. That looks like a place you can find lots of books on the Ten Commandments. So next challenge is to see if I can change the slide. Um, so, no? 
Oh my goodness. Is that on? I don't know. Well, someone probably changed it for me. <laughs> okay, look, look at all the books that I found. Look, that's nowhere near all of them. Um, hundreds and hundreds of books. Uh, we'll just check. Yeah, it's, it's going really well. I'm getting lots of advice, so um, we'll get there. But look at all of those books. You can find a Ten Commandments. You can distill the wisdom that you need into just about anything you want. And there'll be a book for you up there. And maybe there's a sermon for you up there if you're, um, if you're reading carefully. Uh, some of the books that I found really interesting, well, this is an example, The Ten Commandments of Dating. It wasn't written by anybody in this church, but it's amazing you can take something like dating and distill it down into um, ten commandments. Um, and the thing was, it was more than one of these, Dating Secrets of the Ten Commandments. This one said, are you tired of the dating game? Do you fear never finding that special someone? Don't give up hope. Just when you begin to dream of moving to Antarctica or making your pet your lifelong companion, this author can help you to experience overwhelming rewards. Drawing on the ancient wisdom of the Ten Commandments, he'll demonstrate the timeless attraction of mystique and explain the four steps of intimacy, which are attraction, exploration, emotional intimacy, and physical intimacy. Well, that sounded like a good sermon. Um, <laughs> so some of you possibly are quite excited about where this could be going now. Um, the Ten Commandments of Dating uh, are followed by the Dating Secrets of the Ten Commandments. I found there was also Dr. Chloe's Ten Commandments of Dating. Um, the trouble was that if you kept going, you found out that this involved you having to read another one, which was the Ten Commandments of Marriage, um, which was actually written by a divorce lawyer, which I thought <laughs> was quite cool. And if you went um, further... Uh, trouble with that, of course, is that you're going to now need to read the Ten Commandments of um, Parenting, and lo and behold, there was even one on the Ten Commandments of Divorce, so possibly by the end of this we'll have the whole um, cycle, and um, yeah, it would have been interesting, but um, seriously, there were some good books, um, the, the one on the, well, it's probably your left, A Doubter's Guide to the Ten Commandments, I found really inspiring by a guy called John Dixon, and um, he actually was a rock and roll person when I was a rock and roll person, which was a long time ago, um, performing in Australia, and he became a theologian and a writer. It's, it's brilliant. And, um, you know, it's important to, to read, to actually get this bigger picture. There's a whole lot going on. So if you've got time, um, there's a challenge for you. You know, find, find one of these books, grab it out and read it. Um, it might help you make sense of what's going on up here today. A few years ago, we went to a camp and someone got up and said, I'm going to preach to you, but 50% of what I'm going to say is incorrect or wrong. Trouble is, I don't know which 50%. So, you know, one of your jobs is to listen with your minds and your hearts and to distill what's going on and to critique it in a way, to make sense of it and ask the Spirit of God to, um, to come into our hearts and, and to hear the, the truth, not what Charles is saying, but what, what God is saying to you. One of the challenges I'd like to give to the church eldership is that we should not be doing one sermon on the Ten Commandments. There's at least 40 <laughs> sermons here. And I was really worried today because I was looking at the time. You know, I don't think we'll be out until at least one o'clock, especially at this rate. There is so much about the Ten Commandments. It's so seminal. It's so important to our faith. Um, and today, you're going to get a little taste of little bits. Um, and it might leave you wanting more. Um, 
And I think at some point in our church life, we're going to have to challenge ourselves to have a little bit more, to go through those commands of God and to distill what's really going on. So I guess I'm warning you, it's going to be a bit of a wild ride. It's already been a little uncomfortable, hasn't it, watching me squirm up the front while the technology hasn't worked. But it's going to be a wild ride because I'm going to go through slides very quickly and you're going to have to buckle in. But I really pray that there's something for you. But before we um, buckle in, it's probably really important to to have a bit of an overview of where we've been. If you have just stepped into our church this morning, you're right in the middle of the book of Exodus, almost in the middle. And in that book, um, basically we've been moving through the whole story of Israel as it exits out of Egypt. There was a prelude, there was a big event where these plagues came and were used and were instrumental, and there was the departure. All of an adventure kind of movie style size as the the sea crashed down on Pharaoh's army. And we've moved now into part two. Kerry took us into it last week, where we find the Israelites um, camped outside Mount Sinai, um, preparing for something that's going to happen. So part two, which we're moving into, and which people will introduce to you over the next few weeks, is going to show us the journey to and the arrival at Sinai, Um, There's going to be a lot about the laws, and then there's going to be something about the tabernacle. So that's something to look forward to. So last time, we found that Israel had been rescued, brought out of slavery. That word slavery, we probably don't really get it, what it means to be brought out of slavery. But think about it for a while, what it means to have your freedom restored. And that's allowed them to be recreated. They can start anew. And they've been given a brand new purpose that Kerry talked about that, to be God's holy people, a beacon to the nations around them. But they're a brand new nation. And how should they live? That's the focus. How should they live? What is the things that they should bring to their daily lives that articulate, that tell them how they should treat each other, how they should go about their business, who they should be, what is right and what is wrong. And there's something really important here because it's going to single them out um, in terms of who they are. It's interesting that this episode, this episode at Mount Sinai, is going to actually stretch in And until the end of Exodus, it's going to go through the whole book of Leviticus, and it's going to end round about Numbers 10. God is going to be talking to them about how they should live. That's a huge part of that Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And um, in that time, only about a year is going to transpire. So when we read the Bible, time is kind of frozen because this moment is important. How should they live? Really interesting question to us. And the challenge for you today is we can find out about Israel, but really this isn't about Israel, this is about us. We have to think about this story in terms of what it means in our own lives. 1954, a guy called William Golding, all of you are remembering back to your English days at school and there was a bit of a tremble there wrote this book, Lord of the Flies, and he explored this idea of what does it mean to be brought to a place where you have to think about 
what is fundamental about what's right and what's wrong. And it's an interesting story, and it's an amazing kind of context that he plays it out in. You see, a whole lot of boys are left stranded on an island after a plane crash. All the adults have been killed. In the background, we know there's some sort of war going on. The interesting thing is, and what Golding emphasizes, is that the boys are outside of the normal bounds of behavior, of civilization. There's no parents, there's no police, there's no regimented school, there's no daily routine. The boys, one of the first things they do is to make some rules and to agree on their priorities. They do things like build shelters, they light a signal fire, they look after the little children, the little boys. And one big rule they have is that if you're holding the conch shell, then you've got the right to speak. I love this quote. We've got to have rules and obey them. After all, we're not savages, we're English. And the English are the best at everything, so we've got to do the right thing. Of course, unfortunately, it all goes to, in the English sense, custard. Their democratic society is just another game. Order and consideration for others is taken over and a descent into disorder takes place. The game, the game of democracy becomes boring. Self-interest and jealousy rear their heads. And without adults, the boys realize that they can just do anything they want. That disorder turns into chaos the boys become terrified by this idea that there's a beast on the island, a beast that haunts the island, and a beast that wants to get them. They create a hunting party to go after the beast. And this leads to a series of brutal, violent, and irrational acts, including the impaling of a pig's head on a stake as a sacrifice to appease the beast. One of the boys is a boy called Simon, and he represents a connection with spirituality. And he seems to have a clear sense of what's right and what's wrong. And he realizes that the beast that the boys are actually chasing is in fact something that's in the boys themselves. And there's this wonderful quote here, fancy thinking the beast was something that you could hunt and kill. Golding seems to believe that people are ultimately flawed. And if they're left to their own natures, they descend into chaos and evil acts. What's our rule for life? How should we live? What are your rules for life? How should you live? Does your Christianity have anything to do with how you live? Israel's been rescued, they've received grace, and they've agreed to be God's people. Does that ring a bell? Being rescued, receiving grace, agreeing to obey God? What happens next? We really need to take a step back to understand the grandeur of what's going on here, and Kerry brought this out last week, so I'm going to return back to chapter 19 and start at verse 16. You might be reading this. You might have heard that thunder this morning. Did you hear it? Just imagine that. But much, much bigger, expanded, amplified. On the morning of the third day, there was 
thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. And because the Lord descended on it in fire, the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Can you hear the crescendo in the language? Things are getting bigger. Something is gonna be announced. God wants their attention. And God spoke all these words. And from that, we had the Bible reading that came this morning. God in the Bible doesn't often appear like this and directly speak to the people. In fact, in Exodus, this is the time that he does it. And the people find it difficult to listen to. And out of it comes those 10 commandments. There's some really interesting things about those 10 commandments. I mean, one of them is the title 10 commandments is not actually used in the Hebrew. It is there as a heading in our Bible, but the heading wasn't actually there. It's just been put there to help us organize the Bible. If they're called anything, they're called the 10 words. And in Greek, they're sometimes called the Decalogue. 10 words, words that came out of God's mouth. Um, they can be found here in Exodus 20, but you'll also find a version of them in Exodus 34 and a version of them in Deuteronomy 5. And the Exodus 20 and the Deuteronomy 5 ones are almost identical, but not quite. And it's worth studying the differences to see something different happening. Sometimes people have numbered them, but they've used different numbering systems. Jews, Roman Catholics, and Protestants have different ways of numbering the Ten Commandments. And they've often been singled out for memorization as well. There were three things in the 13th century where they thought every Christian should know. One of them was the Apostles' Creed, one of them was the Lord's Prayer, and the other one was the Ten Commandments. If you knew those things, if you put them in your heart, they believed you're on the road to being a good Christian. What's really interesting, though, is there's actually not 10 commandments that are going to appear in the Bible. There's possibly as many or as few as 613 that, that come out in the Torah in Exodus. That actually comes out of a rabbi who said once there's 365 days in a year and there's the rest of the 613 bones in your body that adds up to 613. Sounds interesting, but there are a lot of commands. And, and these commands, the 10, some people argue organize all the other commands that come after them. Some people find it difficult to split them apart and say that they're different. But the Christian tradition has been to treat them differently, to give them a higher status. I think it's really important to realize that they were written in the context of a very ancient world, a world that's long disappeared from our earth, although we still remember it. And they reflect that world. If you look carefully, you'll see that they have assumptions that we would probably not have today. If you read through the 613 laws in particular, 
They say things about women that we wouldn't say today. They assume that it's all right to have a slave, which we probably wouldn't assume that you should be able to do today. And that means they need to be interpreted. They were written in the context of that people. The Ten Commandments themselves also are very broad. Where does stealing begin and finish? Is it all right to steal if you're hungry? We need to interpret them. And they've always been, especially in, in the Jewish life, something that you meditated on, that you took into context and you said, what does it mean for today? They were to be discussed and they were to be applied. Today, we could become involved in the detail, and that's where the other sermons, I think, have to go. We need to look at that detail. But today, I want to look at a bigger picture. And I think it's important to look at that big picture because God's announced these 10 words in a big way. The trumpets have sounded, the earth has trembled, and the thunder has struck. So I'm going to stay with that big picture, and I think there's something happening here that we need to deal with first. And I'm going to rely on C.S. Lewis to help me a little bit. This is some ideas that he wrote in a book um, called The Problem with Pain, and he didn't actually call it the history of religion. He called it the aspects of religion, so I should have used that title. But in this book, one of the things he does is he argues that all developed religion, all developed religions have a number of common strands. He says all of them have three. One of them, he says, is this awareness that there's a supernatural element out there. And he uses the words dread and awe to describe it. When I heard the thunder this morning, I feel that dread. I feel there's something. I can explain it scientifically, but there's something in nature that suggests to me that there's something much bigger and more powerful than me. You could find that same sense, the sense of the spiritual just about anywhere, often in nature, but maybe sometimes in a poem, in an event, in a song, in somebody's eyes. Something that goes beyond what we physically know about and can explain, dread and awe. I guess when the Israelites are standing in front of that mountain and they can see the smoke, the thunder, and they feel their bodies trembling, they're having that experience. An amazing experience that something is bigger than they are. The second element that C.S. Lewis says is fundamental to all religions is this understanding that some things are right and some things are wrong. There are things you ought to do and things you probably shouldn't do. There's a moral law that you should follow. And some people stop there. They work really hard to do the right thing. And they're wonderful, good people because they know there's something right that should be done and that should guide them in their lives. The third element, though, is this connection. This connection between that dread and that awe, that spiritual sense 
of the supernatural and what is good. A revelation that those things are connected together, that you can't think of them as separate things. And according to C.S. Lewis, it was the Jews, the Israelites, who fully and unambiguously identified that the awful presence haunting black mountaintops and thunderclouds, they identified that with the righteous Lord who loveth righteousness. We have a God here who, through his character, defines what good is. We can't separate God from what is right and what is good. And he imprints that in the world that we live in. God spoke those words. He brings these words to his people. I am the Lord, your God. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery? And the first thing he says, you shall have no other gods before me. That before is really interesting. It can be translated different ways. It's not just before, it is that. It's before me, it's beside me, it's instead of me. It's in opposition to me. None of that is to happen. I am the Lord, your God. I am the God who stands outside of reality and who is good. We can't separate the identity of God from the commandments that follow. The two things go together. God is good. God is God. And God wills what is good. Think about that for a while. It's, it's really interesting because as Christians, if we believe in a God who is good, we have a logical base to start from when we think about why we do good. Not just because it's right, not just because it's obvious, but because we seek after the heart of God. And that's not something to be taken for granted because when God is removed, when God is removed, what is right can be subjective, just an accident of history, a convenience to maximize survival. And perhaps the greatest example of that, which happened very near to us in our history, was when the Nazis came to power and their view was that there was no God and that what was right was what evolution produced. In other words, the strong survived. And in Hitler's view, the strong were the Aryan race. And from that flew your reason for life. So Hitler could sound quite convincing. In 1933, he was giving a radio um, address just after he'd been elected to power and he said restoring order is important providing work and bread for our starving masses is important proclaiming the concepts of honour, loyalty and decency as elements of a moral code of ethics is important but when he says that it all sounds like common sense. He's saying to the extent that it upholds our ability as a race of people 
to lord it over the other weaker races. And of course, that led to six million deaths of the Jewish people and, and many, 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 many more. There is a God with a big G. Whether something is right or wrong depends on whether it reflects the character of God. And without God, morals are subjective, accidents of history, conveniences to maximize survival. This kind of belief that God is good can lead to different ways of acting. And I was really um, inspired um, when I saw a picture in Berlin um, in the old Gestapo headquarters, actually. I told Richard Willis today that um, I was going to have a couple of places in the sermon where the Olympics were present, so Richard can recognize that one. It's not Taranaki. It's, um, it is Berlin in 1936. And, and look at the hands raised. That was one of the things that came out of the Nazi morality system. Hail, Sieg Hail, you know, glory to the nation. And it became compulsory. There's another picture. This time it's in Hamburg at some dockyards. And I've circled, or there's a circle on the photo of one person. All of these people, are, nearly all of them, are doing what they're meant to. They're raising their arms. But one guy refuses to. And if you look even closer, you can see that his arms are folded. What an act. What an act. What a brave act. There's a bit of confusion over who this person actually is. Two people have been brought forward. One person actually was in love with a Jewish woman. And shortly after this photo was taken, he was put in prison and he didn't survive the war. But the other person, who I think it probably was, was a person who worked at the shipyard and who was a Christian. And he was known for the fact that when people came up to him and said, Heil Hitler, and you were meant to return that, he would say, Guten Tag, and walk on. It's hard to do the right thing, but what the right thing is when it's right because it's right for God, because God says it's right, is even harder. You have to trust in God. So God speaks. He says all these words, and he introduces the law. But there's a problem with the law. It sets a standard that humans are unable to live up to. And the, don't have to read too much further into Exodus. We're going to find that out. It exposes sin. If there is a standard that's God-given then it shines a light every time it's broken on our sinfulness and it exposes the chasm between us and God. This is a really interesting verse in 2 Corinthians 3 when Paul writes, the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone. So what was engraved on stone? The Ten Commandments. 
They brought death. They brought a knowledge, an understanding, a finalization that sin was in the world. Paul writes in Romans 7, I need something more. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. Paul is a man of the law. He understands the law, and this is his reaction to it. But if you go a little bit further, he also says this, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? And if you turn to the next chapter, it all turns around because he introduces this person, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who came into the world. And you see, when I introduced C.S. Lewis's three elements of what developed religions look like, he said there was a fourth one. But this one is particular to Christianity. This is how he describes it. The fourth strand or element is a historical event. There was a man born among those Jews who claimed to be or to be the son of or to be one with the something which at once is the awful haunter of nature and the giver of the moral law. The claim is so shocking, a paradox and even a horror which we may easily be lulled into taking too lightly that only two views of this man are possible. And he says this, either he was a raving lunatic of an unusually abominable type or else he was and is precisely what he said. There is no middle way. This Jesus came into the world and the Bible announces it like this. But when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, I love that, when the time arrived, God sent a son born among us of a woman born under the conditions of the law so that he might redeem those of us who have been kidnapped by the law. Thus, we've been set free to experience our rightful heritage. You can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as his own children because God sent the spirit of his son into our lives, crying out, Papa, Father. Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave, but a child. And if you are a child, you're also an heir with complete access to the inheritance. What a turn for the books. A law that brought through sin death has been transcended by the arrival of Jesus Christ, who through his spirit allows us to come to him as Papa Father. That's amazing. John Dixon has this kind of image, calls on Pink Floyd. 
If you think of the teaching of the Ten Commandments, he says, think of them as a ray of light, white light, that's passing through the prism of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. If you do, you'll have a mental picture of the transformation that takes place in the new covenant with Jesus. The new Moses, Jesus refracts the light of the first Moses, making some things clearer, some things more intense, and others transformed almost beyond recognition. Really interesting lesson for us there as we read through the book of Exodus. It's all pointing, and all these commandments are pointing to Jesus, and we have to understand them through him. You see, Jesus is the new Moses. He fulfills the law. He redeems us. He makes us righteous. He expands. He doesn't reduce. He expands on the goodness of God. It's not the goodness within the context of an ancient civilization. It's a God who by his character is good. And he gives us this amazing new commandment too: love one another. And he doesn't leave us alone. He provides the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis had this to say, God may be more than moral goodness. He may be more than that. He's not less. The road to the promised land runs past Sinai. A lot of us, are on the road to the promised land. The moral law may exist to be transcended, but there is no transcending it for those who have not first admitted its claim upon them and then tried with all their might to make that claim and fairly and squarely face the fact of their failure. You see, rather than being kind of rigid and fixed, archaic, ancient, Obvious. The commandments open up this moral and spiritual arc or trajectory to Jesus. And it began long ago and it's still going on and it's still asking questions of us. The commandments are part of the story and it's a story we're involved in. And where are you in that story? I wonder this morning, perhaps you sense that spiritual reality. You know there's something more, something real. Dread and awe mean something to you. Maybe you realize there's right and wrong. Perhaps you're trying really hard to be a good person. Maybe you understood that there's a connection between what it means to be good and God. Maybe you've discovered... Jesus. For the Israelites, the Ten Commandments involved the recognition that God and goodness can't be separated. The law was a response that ultimately highlighted the fallen state of human beings. It allowed the beast, that is sin, to create death. And when Jesus came, he's rescued us from that beast by dying on the cross. And he invites us to respond by obeying his commands, to love the Lord our God with all our strength and all our heart and all our mind, and to love each other as we love ourselves. 
And he tells us that it's by that love everybody will know that we're his people, that we're his followers. But how then should we live? How do we respond to a God who is good? How do we live day to day? How do we treat each other? For me, the Ten Commandments reminds me of my failures, of my ongoing failures, to love and to meet God's standard. It tells me that I need to do more. I need to be a better man. And Jesus Christ inspires me to do that. But if you're anything like me, there are failures. Might be an addiction, a grudge that's been held, a failure to act. And perhaps God's convicting you right now of his goodness. When I fail, and I do fail, my starting point, my first reaction is to run into the arms of God, crying, Papa, Father. And I hear those words, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how then should we live? How do you respond to Mount Sinai, to the 10 words of God? I want to finish with a video clip that can express what Papa Father means more than my words can. And aptly, it's another Olympic moment, this time from Barcelona in 
what a God we have. And how much does He love you? How much does He love you? He wants you to love others too. Amen. Let's pray and the music team can come up. Lord Jesus, you stood on a mountain and you told an ancient people that you were God and that you were good. And Lord Jesus, you want us to follow you. You want us to obey you. You want us to know what it is to be good. But we fail. Lord, Help us to come to you, to be empowered by your spirit, to take your love into this world, to be your people. In your name, amen.